Well, if you would tonight, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at the first 19 verses. Last week, we finished up this short section on worship. And the last verse of chapter 14, it said, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, I have to say, as I think of that, I think, you know, that's a good Presbyterian verse, yes. But I think of all the things that we can do as a leader, and I tell people sometimes about certain situations, I ask myself this question, what hill would I be willing to die on? After all, when we do things, we're told to do things decently and in order, it's a reminder that we as sinners put things into chaos and put God's order into disorder. And after all, there will be divisions, disagreements, discussions, debates, distractions in the church. And what do we do about it? Well, is my hill my eschatological view? I have to say, I don't think it is. Is my hill my sacramental position? There are many in history who did die on that hill, a literal physical death. Is it about my Presbyterian form of church government? Is that the hill that I would die on? I don't know that I would, but I think it's important because it's biblical. But here is one thing I would die for, the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is simply no Christianity. Here is how Paul puts it to the Corinthians in this great little section of scripture saying how important it is that Jesus truly was raised from the dead. Here's what he says, again, to a church that is divided, distressed, distracted. He says this, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. As we consider these words about the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, let these words fall on ears that hear and hearts that understand. Remind us once again of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the importance of the resurrection. Lord, we trust in you, for you alone give life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Years and years ago now, my wife Jennifer had a sister who was in a terrible car accident while she was in college. The car accident was so grave that the doctors gave a very grim diagnosis. This was Jennifer's sister next in line. Jennifer's the oldest. The next one was her sister, Rebecca. She was in college a part of the time at the same time as Jennifer. They were close growing up. And the doctors said the chance of survival was low. The statistical probability of being anything beyond what we call a human vegetable was very low. A normal life was unlikely. The family ought to prepare for the worst. There was trauma not only to her body, but also to her brain. And of course, you know, when there's brain damage, you never know what is going to take place. And as time went by, and she was ready, she began to start with the basics. Learning to eat for herself. Talking and walking. For some reason, she wanted Jennifer above all other families to help bathe her and do other things much, I'm sure, to Jennifer's chagrin. But all of this had to be relearned. It was basically the basics. Going back to being like a little child. And so her recovery began. And over time, she walked across the stage for her college graduation and became a teacher. To this day, she teaches elementary school. But she had to go back to the basics. The Corinthian church had gone through spiritual and organizational trauma. At the beginning of the letter, Paul is addressing their divisions. They follow different leaders and are jealous of one another. They went through a period of sexual immorality, particularly one individual in the church who had a grievous case that even the world around them would describe as a terrible thing to be involved in. And yet, they had gone through the lack of discipline for this individual. They'd gone through envy, particularly when it came to spiritual gifts. They were envious of one another. This person might have that gift, or this person might have that gift, and they said one person was better than another. There were errant emphases on doctrines and practices. We saw that throughout this last section of the letter, where particularly their worship experiences were wild, and distracting from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does Paul do after he goes through all of those things and addresses all of those questions they have on marriage and sexual immorality and on divisions and strife and spiritual gifts and worship and all those things, what does Paul do to conclude his letter? He goes back to the basics, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he reminds them of the impact that the gospel should have upon them. 
He reminds them of the content of the basic gospel. And then he shows them the importance of the resurrection. First of all, the impact of the gospel. Really, it's rather unfortunate that most of our translations say, now I would remind you, because the word is to make known. In other words, he thinks that some people in the church have either forgotten or never to begin with heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, now I, brothers, want to remind you, actually make known to you the gospel I evangelized to you. That is, when I brought you the good news. And he says here, the impact of the gospel is this, you received it. He's talking here to the church corporately. This is the gospel that you received. And of course, to receive it, if they were like the Thessalonian church, they received it gladly because they accepted it for what it was, the very word of God. He says, you received this. And of course, this also indicates that at least some in that church received it by faith. They believed it. They trusted in it. And when they received it, they received it gladly, and a church was born. And he's reminding them of that first occasion when he came to them and preached the gospel. And then he also reminded them of this, in which you stand, upon which you stand. You see, the whole point of a church is that the gospel is true and there are those within the assembly that have believed the gospel to be true. It is the good news. In fact, without that good news or the gospel, there is no church. There is no place to stand. We would just be a social club like all the other social clubs in town. And that's because of this. Verse 2 says, and by which, that is the gospel by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now he's not saying here that it's up to them to hold on to the gospel or perhaps they would fall away from faith and all those things. He's reminding them that if they truly believed the gospel, it is not vain. You are being saved by it. You see, the whole point of the gospel is this. The gospel reveals to you your sin and your need for a savior. And the gospel presents to you one individual. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah and the Christ, who did this. Because this is the content of the gospel. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. These are the basics, aren't they? If I were to interview all of you out in the worship service today, most of you, if not all of you, would say the heart of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. This, of course, we were reminded in Scripture, was prophesied specifically by Isaiah 53. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be the one who died for our iniquity. He is the one whom God prepared to be the sacrifice for his people. Christ died for our sins. If that statement is not included in your church records, in your church uh, content, and in your uh, belief section on your website about what your church believes, then you're missing the whole point. 
That is the first thing. Notice what he says, as of first importance. Without that atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. Secondly, he says this, Christ was buried. In other words, Christ really did die. He really was buried, and as Isaiah 53 said, he was buried with a rich man or in a rich man's tomb. There he was, dead and buried. Now, if that was where we were to end, we would say he's just like everybody else in history. Why is he important to us? But here is the last thing. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, this is the difference in history between this man and all others. Now, there were a few resurrections in the Old Testament. Perhaps you remember when Elijah raised the son of a woman uh, that he was working with and stayed in her house, that by God's grace and by praying to God, this person was raised from the dead. Perhaps you're reminded in the time of Jesus when Lazarus was raised from the dead or when there was the woman, the daughter of Jairus, who was raised from the dead. You have those resurrections, but as far as we know, those individuals died again. But there is one person in history that we have evidence that he was raised from the dead to live forevermore, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the testimony. Christ made post-resurrection appearances. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom during the time of the Corinthian letter that it was written are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why does Paul mention all these post-resurrection appearances of Christ? Why not just mention one or two? First of all, he mentions Cephas. Now, if you know who Cephas was, this is the apostle Peter. Cephas, another name for Peter. One of the places we could turn to is on your outline there, Luke 24, 34, a reference to the fact that Jesus appeared to Cephas. In other words, after he died on the cross, after he was verified to be dead, even having a spear thrust in his side so that water and blood flowed out, an indication physically that he was dead, even after they took his body down from that cross and laid him in that tomb, he appeared to Peter alive. Do you realize how that sounds to people who don't believe that could be possible? say we're science fiction lovers, crazy people, or foolish in so many ways. But Peter testified, I have seen the Lord. Then he appeared to the twelve, both in John 20, 19, and also 26 and following. It describes the disciples, and not necessarily just the twelve in those places, but in one place where Thomas was not there, and the next place where Thomas was there, Thomas would even testify that Jesus invited him to touch his nail-pierced hands and the scar in his side. He appeared to the twelve, these disciples that would go out and tell the world that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then it says, One thing that we don't even know exactly what circumstance this was, he appeared to 500 at the same time. We forget sometimes that Jesus appeared to his disciples, his followers, 
the believers for 40 days after he died. For a long time period until he ascended into heaven, he appeared to them again and again, teaching them, training them, showing them that he was the Christ and he really did fulfill the words of God that he was raised from the dead. And then, of course, Paul also mentions an appearance to James. James, we think, is James the brother of Jesus. And, of course, here is so tender because James was among those that did not believe that Jesus was the Christ and his family until the time of the resurrection. And the tender thing here is that evidently Jesus was permitted by the Father with his brother James having been chosen from all eternity to believe upon the gospel seeing the risen brother, Jesus, raised from the dead. Then he says he appeared to all the apostles. We see this particularly at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts at the ascension. And he says, last of all, as to one untimely born. The word here is as, as or like an abortion. He appeared also to me. Paul compared himself to a dead baby. He says, lastly to me, to Paul. Why does he say, lastly to me, he says this, because I was unworthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul recognizes there was nothing in him that was worthy to be an apostle. In fact, much the opposite. He deserved the wrath and condemnation of God because he was traveling across the region in order to persecute those who believed in Jesus. And yet, by God's grace, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and changed his life. And then Paul says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, he did not earn his position of apostle. It was merely by God's grace that he attained that office. And yet he can say this, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, he says, Paul's efforts by God's grace seem to indicate that it may have even been greater than all of the other apostles put together. So on the one hand, Paul says, I am nothing. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. On the other hand, God made me what I am. An apostle that was willing to stand up to Peter when he was wrong. An apostle that would say, with all the tender affections for his people, that he would be willing to suffer for Christ's sake so that others might hear the gospel. Even if others would tell and proclaim the gospel for unworthy purposes and with bad motives, Paul says the most important thing is that Christ crucified is proclaimed. You see, the content of the gospel, Jesus died for our sins, Jesus was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, and here is all the testimony to prove it. I've lived in many places across the country. I've lived in the Midwest, I've lived in the Plain States, I've now lived in the Mid-South and in South Carolina. I lived in upstate New York when I was young. I've lived in Ohio and Michigan and Kansas and Missouri. I've lived in all those places. And many times when I was there, if I was going to watch the local news station, they would describe themselves as eyewitness news. Isn't that funny? 
especially now when, when there are fewer and fewer uh, eyewitness accounts. Now we just get videos and they might comment on those videos, but the reporters don't go out in the field anymore. They sit back in the, in the office or in the studio so often and rely upon others. In fact, we're losing the time when reporting of eyewitness testimony was crucial to establish guilt in our courts. Now people are guilty by association, guilty by gossip and slander, guilty because something may have been written about them. Our electronic systems forge ahead with less and less reliance on personal interaction and even witnessing signatures. How many things have you signed recently that required no one to witness your signature because it's all electronic and you verify, you mark a box that says, I verify, this is my signature. How many people could sign something without necessarily being the person who was to sign it? You see, eyewitness testimony is so very important. What does scripture say about eyewitness testimony? In order to establish the guilt of someone in a court of law, that must be verified by two or three witnesses. In fact, two or three witnesses seems to be the standard throughout the scriptures of anything that would be considered true and verifiable. And what does God do through Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, about the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead? Did he have two or three witnesses? No, he had 500 plus witnesses. Paul is basically saying to the church in Corinth, most of those 500 individuals are still alive when I pen this letter. If you don't take my word for it, go ask them. They're eyewitnesses that Jesus is raised from the dead. There are more witnesses to this event in the ancient world than almost any other event that took place put down on paper. Eyewitness testimony that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is resurrected. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul says, this is it. This is the hill that we die on. This is the thing by which we live or die as believers. This is the truth, the gospel, that without that gospel we have nothing. And then he pre presents to us a hypothetical Evidently, there were those in the Corinthian church that said there is no resurrection of the dead. And unfortunately, I have to tell you, there are liberal churches across our nation who say, from the pulpits and proclaiming to presbyteries and to other assemblies, the resurrection is not true. In the late 19th and early 20th century, the Presbyterian mainline church in our country made it acceptable for a candidate for ministry to deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and still be a minister of the gospel. It made it possible to state that Jesus was not born from the Virgin Mary, that she was not a virgin when he was born, and many other statements. In fact, they're willing to compromise on the idea that the Bible is the very word of God. In case you think it's just the Presbyterian mainline denomination that does that, there are many churches that do that. And there were those in the Corinthian church, it's not a new problem. There are those who would say there is no resurrection of the dead. In other words, 
we might think that there is a symbolic resurrection. In Greek times and in Greek wisdom and thought, there was the idea that death would free the soul. Body's done. The soul would be freed. There are those even in the church of today that would say that really Jesus' soul slept in the grave. He wasn't really dead. But Paul says the gospel is this. Jesus died. He was buried and he was raised. So he addresses this question and this problem with this hypothetical, logical situation. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, and then there's this whole length of logical consequences of what would take place. He said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And yet he's just said there's over 500 witnesses that say that he has. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. There's no point to it. It's idiotic. It's silly and foolishness. If preaching is in vain, then your faith is in vain. Not only that, your faith is futile. It's ridiculous. In other words, if there is no resurrection, Christ has not been raised, what are you believing? What is the point of your faith? Then he says this, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. The word misrepresenting is not strong enough. The word here is false witnesses. They're liars. Paul says, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, I am a liar. And all of those who are preaching the gospel of Christ are liars. Liars to God because they testified that God raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And what are the consequences of that? Everyone's still in their sins. There's not a Savior. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. Then... Believers who have already died, among them by this point, James the Apostle was beheaded for the sake of the gospel. They've perished. They're destroyed. There's no point. He says here, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, that's another consequence. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we have no hope of heaven. We can't sing songs about going to the other side of Jordan. We can't sing the songs about waiting to get to heaven. We can't look for the time where there will be no more crying or pain. This is it. That's all. You know, it was a wake-up call the first of the five times I went to Latvia, and I was reminded about the difference in experiencing life. The people of my generation who lived in Latvia grew up in the Soviet Empire. And they grew up in a place where there was no freedom, where they were told what to do. They were given their wages. They were afraid because if they didn't tow the appropriate lines, they might be taken without any warning off to a prison, perhaps never to be heard from again from their family. But when that empire collapsed, 
many of those, particularly in the older generation who are now elderly, some of whom have even passed on, everyday folks had a personal crisis. They had been taught from the time that they were young that there was no God. Atheism. They had been taught that ruthless dictators and the ways of the Soviet empire which was oppressing their own people was the way of the world. The propaganda was so strong that they believed in communism and in all the ways that that, that pre prevailed over the people. Especially the elders when they came to the place where the Soviet empire fell and places like Latvia and some of the other surrounding territories left to become free countries. Those elderly found it shocking and traumatic to have their entire worldview collapse. In fact, some of them refused to accept the new way of freedom offered to them. They didn't want not to be cared for by the government anymore. They didn't want the freedom to advance in society both economically and in freedom and in the spiritual freedom they might have. To them, it was a shock to their entire system. We call such a thing an existential crisis. Would this happen to us if someone could prove there was no resurrection? Is our life so geared upon the gospel of Jesus Christ that this entire truth affects us in all of our being? This is what Paul was proclaiming. His whole life was geared to proclaiming the gospel. He had been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And his whole calling was to proclaim that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if that wasn't true, then literally his entire life was worthless and futile and in vain. Would the courts be able to convict us of the same thing? Paul says this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, this is a consequence if Jesus was not raised from the dead. We are all, of all people, most to be pitied. Why? Believers are most pitied of all men if Jesus was not raised from the dead. Why is that? Because every hope that we have, every promise that we hold dear, every reason for our existence in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in everything that we do is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that has impacted us. And our hope is that not that we would advance in society, not that we would gain a great reputation and have a statue in our name or a building named after us or for a great opportunity for the world to see how wonderful we are. No, it's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything that we do. You see, Paul is reminding them this church that he loves despite its blemishes and imperfections, despite the fact that some of them have basically told him they didn't like him in his leadership style or his speaking ability. Those that would tell him when you're with us, you're one person. When you're away from us, you're somebody else. Why in the world should we listen to you on all these topics ranging from immorality to marriage to divisions in the church to, to the way that we worship? Why should we listen to you? And he loved them and he tells them it's time to get back to the basics. 
disagreements, divisions, rabbit trails, distractions can prompt us to miss the boat. We're about Jesus raised from the dead. This is the joy that we have. Sometimes we get all bent out of shape because something hasn't gone according to what we want. Sometimes we get all out of order because we don't get along with each other. Sometimes we we forget when we have all these love interests of doctrines and different distractions and we see all the treasures of scripture and we get caught up in the details so much that we lose the forest for the trees. And Paul reminds them, I die on this hill. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The gospel is true. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved from your sins. If you trust in him, you will have eternal life. And because this is true and over 500 eyewitnesses have verified it, then we don't have hope just in this life only. We have the hope of heaven that there will come a day when Jesus shall return and we shall have life eternal. Let's pray. Father, when it's appropriate, when we lose ourselves, when we get upset, disunited, disrespect others, disagree, get distracted, remind us of the basics, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believed, that we stand upon. And Lord, by your grace that we received by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might have eternal life. Lord, make this the goal of our life so that we might be those who follow you to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the good news, the gospel, that Jesus has been raised from the dead.